From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Ed Laskowski, in for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Students and families around the country are gearing up for spring break. For many, that means travel. Lucky ducks. <laughs> On today's program, we'll get some tips for staying healthy when you travel from a Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist. If you are planning to travel uh, abroad for spring break, it's a good idea to talk to your primary care provider before you leave. There are some destinations that we would advise seeing a travel medicine specialist in case you need extra vaccines or preventative medications when you travel there. So it's good to mention this to your healthcare providers. Also on the program, how to get moving without a gym membership, robotic mitral valve repair, and macular degeneration. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Ed Laskowski. And I'm Tracy McRae. Dr. Laskowski, it's great to have you sitting in today for Dr. Shives. Big shoes to fill, Tracy, but <laughs> it's a lot of fun to have you here. <laughs> February is coming to a close this weekend, and for many of us, that means it's time to escape the northern winter and head off on spring break. Of course, we need to pack our sunscreen, but what else do we need to stay healthy and take care of our bodies when we travel? How do we avoid illness when cramped in close quarters with others on an airplane or on a cruise ship? (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take that. Here to discuss staying healthy while traveling is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rajapaksi. It's great to have you here. Great. Thanks. It's great to be back. Is traveling really dangerous? When it comes to uh, infections, it, yeah. it can be. We have an airplane where you're in close quarters with people, uh, multiple people using the same seats over time, touching a lot of different things. And so definitely there are certain types of infections that you can pick up while flying in an airplane. Um, Some common things are things like the common cold or even flu. Um, When you have things that are circulating in the air or spread by respiratory droplets, as most viral infections are, um, and you're in a close, confined area with a lot of people, there's always a chance you can get infected with something like that. Almost every time that you uh, look for tips for staying healthy when you're traveling, it's drinking lots of water. Do you agree? Yes. So I think it is very important. Uh, Airplane air can be very drying. And so to stay hydrated is one of the best things you can do to keep yourself healthy, especially while taking long flights. You know, if you're in that window seat or the middle seat and, you know, you have to get up, you don't want to get up too much. So how much water should we drink when we're on a plane? So as a general rule, in terms of staying hydrated, you want to drink as much fluids as you need to keep your urine looking nice and clear. So if it has a dark yellow or concentrated look to it, you're probably not drinking enough. Obviously, on an airplane, not the easiest space to move around a lot in, um, but that's usually the best guide that we get. It varies recommendations for kids or adults or how big you are. When uh, we think about Petri dishes, we don't think about flying Petri dishes. We think about cruising Petri dishes. Why is it that people get those norovirus-type diseases on a cruise ship? Yeah, so there's a few things about cruise ships that make them um, lots of fun, but also a great place to pick up a lot of types of infections. Usually you've got a pretty big ship, but a lot of people that are in a confined area. And in any situation, that's kind of a breeding ground for transmission of infections. You also have a lot of people who are eating from a few common areas. Often, some of those involve kind of buffet-type setups. And so that food can sit out for relatively prolonged periods of time. And that also sometimes helps to spread some of these outbreaks. And on cruise ships, uh, sometimes access to water is not as good as in a 
hotel or on land. And so things like hand washing may not be done as commonly by people mm-hmm. in that situation. So I think all of those factors together um, kind of lead to things, especially norovirus, being associated with travel on cruise ships. So, you know, recently in the news, hand sanitizers have been making the press. So do they really work? Do hand sanitizers really work? Yeah, so hand sanitizers are very effective um, when used in the proper situation. So any time that you have visible soiling on your hands, you need to use soap and water to wash them. Hand sanitizers are not effective in that situation. Mm-hmm. But definitely in situations where you might not have ready access to soap and water, using hand sanitizer can be very effective. Some of the pathogens that cause diarrhea, they may be best removed from your hands using soap and water because that physically washes them off and down the drains, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have access to soap and water, using a hand sanitizer is, is good for most things. At this point, I'm just daydreaming about spring break. It's on the <laughs> it's on the calendar. For me and the kids, my husband, should we be you know doubling down on our vitamins, vitamin D, and you know, all sorts of to stay as healthy as we can going into a spring break? So generally what we recommend, especially for kids, is just having a healthy, balanced diet. Uh, most of the essential vitamins and nutrients that you need, that your body needs to stay healthy, you can get through doing that. And it's always preferable to get those through natural sources like fruits and vegetables or dairy products or things like that where possible. Um, there's not any specific um, vitamin or supplement that we recommend, aside from babies who are breastfeeding, usually need a vitamin D supplementation because they don't get adequate levels. Well, thinking out of getting, getting out of the cold and into some warm weather climate, you think of places like Mexico and, and other places where we may be, the water may be suspect. So what do, what do you advise as far as drinking water? How do you how do you say, measure if it's safe or how do you tell? Yeah, so it's often difficult for individual people to know kind of the safety of the water in the areas that they are in. Traveling to places like Mexico, the Caribbean, generally we recommend in those locations to stick to drinking bottled water. Um, commercially bottled water with a sealed cap um, is the safest option in places like that. We av- recommend avoiding tap water, um, especially because it's quite variable in different areas as well as to how well the water is treated and how safe it is. Um, during the coronavirus outbreak that we've been experiencing this winter, uh, in China especially, they were wearing face masks and people in this country wondering if I should have a face mask on while I'm traveling. What does that do and should we have a face mask when we're on an airplane? Sure. Uh, that's a great question because I think there's been a, a lot of kind of information and misinformation about that uh, going around. Um, a face mask can, if you or yourself are sick, wearing a face mask can help decrease your risk of transmitting that illness to someone else. Essentially, it keeps your own respiratory droplets, if you cough or sneeze, kind of closer to you and doesn't allow them to go as far forward and transmit to other people. Um, generally, people who are healthy, the current recommendations are that you don't need to wear a face mask. Um, there's different types of face masks, but the most common ones that people have been wearing, um, they aren't airtight, and so things can still get in around them, and so we don't think that they really provide enough protection that we would recommend generally everybody wearing them. I have thought sometimes when I'm on the plane and I can hear somebody coughing, you know, in other part of the plane, obviously we're all on the same plane together. And so I've often thought, should I just wear a face mask when I'm on an airplane? Would it protect me? It doesn't sound like maybe it would. So in a public setting, we wouldn't recommend wearing it for protection of, or avoidance. Really the best thing you can do in that type of setting is uh, excellent hand washing, as we kind of already talked about, and avoiding kind of being in very close proximity. Most of these respiratory uh, droplets don't transmit beyond a few meters. And so even though it might be bothersome or you might make you concerned if you hear people 
a few rows behind you with symptoms, um, your risk of getting that is relatively low. What is the difference between the flu, just the regular flu, and the coronavirus flu? What's the difference? Yeah, so uh, flu, as we kind of call it, is caused by the influenza virus. Um, Coronaviruses are a separate family of viruses. There are many different types of coronaviruses, and there's actually four human coronaviruses that circulate very commonly. They're one of the common causes of colds. So many people in their lifetime will get them and get infected with them, and generally they cause uh, runny nose, sore throat, maybe a bit of cough. Um, What is happening right now is a different type of coronavirus. This is a new one, one that we haven't seen before. That's why it's called novel. And this one is seeming to cause kind of more severe symptoms, as we've seen with some of the prior outbreaks of coronaviruses. People might be familiar with SARS or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome back in 2002-2003, or MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, um, back uh, started back in 2012. These are kind of events that seem to happen every decade or so where we have a new coronavirus that emerges and seems to cause severe disease. But they're two different viruses. The flu and coronaviruses are kind of separate families of virus. So to sum up, uh, proper hydration, proper, I guess, sleep and nutrition as well, Mm -hmm. and hand washing, hand washing, hand washing, (laughs) hand sanitizer, right? And I will say, um, if you are planning to travel uh, abroad for spring break, it's a good idea to talk to your primary care provider before you leave. There are some destinations that we would advise seeing a travel medicine specialist in case you need extra vaccines or preventative medications when you travel there. So it's good to mention this to your healthcare providers. It's great information. Well, we've been discussing how to take care of yourself and avoid germs during travel with Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert, Dr. Nipune Rajapaksi. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rajapaksi. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Leskowski takes the turn as guest to discuss easy ways to get moving even if we're stuck inside and can't go on spring break. (laughs) You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae, and now Dr. Leskowski has switched hats from co-host to guest. Yes. Glad to have you here, Dr. Leskowski. It's a pleasure to still be here, Tracy. <laughs> we just talked about traveling and getting away for spring break, but there are some of us who are stuck at home, or maybe we can't get off of work, and the long winter break can take its toll on our fitness. And how do we get moving? This is the question that I want to know. You know, uh, Dr. Leskowski, even for me, when everybody else goes to the gym in January, I tend to not go to the gym as much because I don't like the crowds. So I use that as an excuse, legitimate or not. Right. I bet I'm not the only one. You aren't. And, and you know the cold weather, of course. But, you know, movement is medicine. There's a lot of ways to get movement besides going to a gym. First of all, in the wintertime, I think it's good to get outside a little bit. Mm-hmm. It really is. It does shorten the winter. There's beauty in the winter season, you know, that's not there in the summer. So getting out and just walking in your neighborhood, snowshoeing, um, if you like outdoor sports and all, those are great things to do. And it, I think it makes the winter pass more quickly. And as long as we're prepared for it, you know, dressing in layers, getting a layer close to your skin that's wicking of the moisture that may develop and then dressing to have a windproof layer, have some good insulation in there. Um, you know, you can really be quite comfortable in, in very low temperatures. And sometimes you get a, you know, you get a sunny day that's that's maybe five degrees, but the sun's out and the snow's <laughs> glistening and it's, you know, it, it, it can, it can Said be like nice. true Minnesota. Yeah, I am scary, the but, same yeah. way. Yesterday it was such a beautiful sunshiny day and I thought it's time to go for a run. Excellent. Uh, well, all right. So we've got 
got the activity, you could go outside or, uh, you know, last winter we survived the 60 degree below wind chill. You can certainly go to the mall or even go to box stores. I kind of went and did some laps at a box store last year. You know, that's great. <laughs> again, it, it, I think, again, with activity, people sometimes think, oh, man, I got to be running a marathon and doing those types of things. But again, any movement is good movement. So wherever you can get that, if you have indoor equipment, if you have a treadmill or you like an elliptical or a bike, and there's no magic piece of equipment. It really has to be something you like to do that's practical, that's enjoyable, then you're going to do it. Um, mall walking or walking in a community school or something like that, uh, community centers, those are great. You know, we can use technology, the electronic dance machines, you know, <laughs> you know, if you like that, right. you know, that gets you moving. Or regular dance, you sure. know, ballroom dancing burns mm-hmm. a, a lot of calories, actually. So Let's say that you do not belong to a gym or you want to take my lame excuse of there's too many people there in the winter. What are some exercises that you can do at home without any equipment that just at home or maybe if you're on a break at work that you could do? Are there uh, a few of them you could share? Sure. So, you know, this most simple one that we tend to neglect is just walking. And, And really, you can get the same benefit as running from walking if you oh do it gosh. consistently. So just simple stuff. So the more you can walk, if you walk indoors on a treadmill, if you just walk around your workplace, the, the old thing about parking further away, the more walking you accumulate, the better for our health. Okay. That's one of them. A basic exercise that doesn't require any equipment is a squat. Okay. And, and we do a squat every day, you know, when we sit down in chairs, get up from chairs. Technique is important, but we use multiple muscles and multiple joints in doing that exercise. And it's very what we call functional. It's specific to the things that we do in life, and it trains us for what we do in life, like sitting down, getting up. So is this like you want to imagine so that we do them correctly, because mm-hmm. I don't want to mess with people's knees. Yep. If you're doing them correctly, you imagine that you're sitting down into a chair? Yeah. If you want, though, we have on mailclinic.org, mm-hmm. we have a whole video series. Okay. <laughs> so so that is a good point, but but it's important to keep your, your knees over your feet as well. You don't want your knees caving inwards, and uh, we show you how to do it, though. You okay. don't need a password. You don't need log in if you go to mailclinic.org and you just search strength training videos we have a whole mess of videos that cover body weight exercises and these are exercises just using your own body weight like a squat okay i've got that walking and squat what's next well how about core everybody talks about core and uh, we like a plank or bridge position you you can do those for an hour right hours (laughs) hours and hours of planking i don't care (laughs) that's great but but it's those are great exercises they use a bunch of different abdominal muscles at the same time and back muscles and they, they train the core that midsection of our body which is very important and again we on that same video series we have instructions on how to do a proper plank or bridge exercise we have a whole series actually on core exercises that you could peruse and look at as well but uh, plank or bridges for the core and a bridge position is kind of when you lie on your back and you just kind of hike your your buttocks up and and, and just kind of hold that position that also trains a bunch of different muscles at the same time okay gotcha all right what's next you know, a simple thing like stair climbing. You okay. know, it really, it really does a nice job of training the glute muscles and, and you know, giving you a good workout for a, a bunch of different muscles and joints in, in the legs. So taking the stairs is, is actually a good thing. So I have seen people here at Mayo Clinic, because we've got some tall buildings, yeah. I, I've seen them doing stairs. Yep. But even if you're talking about going from your basement up to your second level, just even those amounts of stairs are Absolutely. Out. Okay. Yeah, that accumulates. And, and if you want to repeat it and do it again, going down, use 
uses the muscles in a little different way than going up. Okay. So if you have ever run down a hill or you kind of really feel those quads burning because right. they, they stabilize the knee when we do that. But yeah, those are, those are very simple things. And again, you, you can work your way up. You don't have to do, you know, 17 flights at once. Okay. But, uh, but that helps. All right. And you said we've got five. So those yep. are walking, squat, plank or bridge and mm-hmm. stairs. What's the fifth one? Well, how about a push up? Oh, okay. Um, you know, and that's, it's basic, but it's kind of like a squat for the arms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it works a bunch of different <laughs> upper extremity muscles and joints at the same time. Um, just be careful if you, if you have some wrist issues or wrist pain or some shoulder issues. Again, technique very important with the way you do a push up, but a properly performed push up can, can be a nice exercise. And, and again, it's almost like in a plank position. So you're actually training core at the same time sure. as well. Doesn't matter if I'm doing on the knees or if you have to be on your toes. Does it matter either way? It's a great point. And when you start off, you may want to be on your knees because that, that reduces the, the, the stress. And Anything that helps. They're easier to do, right? <laughs> Excellent. Exactly. Um, what about uh, the people who are watching on the video can see there's a man sitting at his desk behind you. Yeah. What about at work? If you have a job where you're sitting in a computer all day long, or even for that matter, I mean, we're just sitting here at this counter. Right. What are some things that you could do at work that might help? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think just changing position is key. And some of us may have access to standing desks or can request standing desks for our job. If we really are at the computer a lot of times, just even that, even varying from a sit to stand position is helpful. That really makes a difference it, to be standing. It does make okay. a difference. Yeah, just movement of the body. It, we want to prevent those prolonged static positions where okay. we're just in one place. Um, you know, treadmill desks, and, and again, not everybody will have access to these, but if you have an opportunity, those are desks in a, which we can actually walk at a slow pace while we're doing computer activities. Um, you know, there's some machines available as well when you're seated that you can actually pedal. It's almost like a bicycle you pedal. So you can put it under your workspace. Oh. You can be pedaling with your feet <laughs> okay. as, you're, as you're working on the computer mm-hmm. and working on desk tasks. But, and again, taking breaks. You know, sometimes it'll, you know, even when we're, we're in one place, even our mind, when our mind is just, just doing computer work for a long period of time, it needs a break as well. Right. So just getting up and walking around, even two, three minutes, and then getting back will refresh you. And what about finally, um, when you're on the computer, my this is for me, my shoulders start to go forward. Yeah. What is there a stretch or something that I can do when I'm doing that one or two minute break yeah. to kind of reverse the damage that I'm doing? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Actually, on mailclinic.org, if you <laughs> if you search stretching slideshow, you'll get a whole mess of stretches, and that's called a, a pectoral stretch. And okay. you are exactly right, Tracy. Our, our world now is in front of us. So we have computers and smartphones and tablets, everything kind of pulling us in that forward direction. So we need to do exercises that, that take us the other mm-hmm. way, and, and things like stretching the pectoral muscles is one. We, we have a door frame one that you can do where you put your arm in a door frame and kind of turn away from that door frame, and that'll stretch the front part, the pectoral muscle, and again, in that slideshow, we'll show you how to do those. All right. Well, Dr. Laskowski, thank you so much for sitting in for Dr. Shives in our previous interview and for all your expertise in this one. My pleasure, Tracy. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Tom Shives is back, and he is my co-host once again. We'll learn about the robotic repair of the mitral valve and the common eye problem as we age, macular degeneration. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is a chronic lung disease that makes it tough to breathe. It's the third leading cause of death in the U.S., with more than 15 million people currently living with the disease, according to the American Lung Association. In a paper published in JAMA, Mayo Clinic researchers described the benefits of in-home non-invasive ventilation therapy for many patients with COPD. The therapy includes what's called bi-level positive airway pressure, or BiPAP. The team identified a number of benefits, including reduced mortality, fewer hospital admissions, lower risk of intubation, improved shortness of breath, and fewer emergency department visits. Now, many people who have COPD suffer from what's called hypercapnia, the retention of carbon dioxide, a waste product you usually expel when you breathe. This may lead to acute respiratory failure and hospitalization. One treatment for chronic hypercapnia is non-invasive ventilation, or a machine with a mask that helps to improve breathing. Dr. Michael Wilson, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Mayo Clinic, led the study and said they knew that using breathing devices used in the hospital are beneficial for patients, but they wanted to see if using them at home was a good thing too. After a meta-analysis, they found that there does seem to be some clear benefits to using devices such as BiPAP, but he also says there's a lot more to learn to find out which machines are best for in-home use. He says patients with COPD should talk with their physicians to determine whether a breathing device such as a BiPAP machine might be a good choice because there may be real benefits. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, we have talked about the heart valves before. As you recall, there are four of them. And just like the valves and the plumbing in your house, they open to allow blood to flow forward and they close to prevent blood from flowing backward. Now, the valve between the two chambers on the left side of your heart, that is the left atrium, the left ventricle, that is called the mitral valve. Now, there are two things that can go wrong with the mitral valve. The opening is too narrow, and that restricts the flow of blood to the rest of the body, or it doesn't close the way it should, and blood leaks. The blood flows backwards. And here to tell us about repairing the mitral valve With the help of a robot is Mayo Clinic cardiovascular surgeon, Dr. Rocky Daly. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Daly. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, so good to see you. So uh, the buzzword uh, for any kind of surgical procedure is minimally invasive. So tell us about the techniques that are minimally invasive in the field of heart surgery. So when we're talking about that, we're talking about different incisions. We're not talking about doing different surgery on the heart. We do the same surgery on the heart. We just use different incisions, and they're smaller incisions in a different location. And we think that that helps with uh, time to recovery. It does seem to help patients recover and get stamina back sooner. So you can do those minimally invasive surgeries with or without the robot, right? Well, that's true. We can. I think the robot helps us in a lot of ways, uh, Uh, and, and makes it a little bit easier, actually. And tell us how that system works. So the robot really moves the surgeon's hands inside the chest, and we can put the hands or the arms of the robot in through little incisions, and then they they work just exactly what the surgeon wants them to do uh, while the surgeon working on, on the robot sits at a console that's remote from the patient. Uh, so you're not even at the operating table? 
one surgeon is at the operating table. Okay. I should understand because we do want somebody right there that's working on the patient, and they do their work through a little incision that's about an inch long uh, or as little as an inch long. And then the other surgeon sits at the robot console and controls the arms or the hands of the robot to work inside the chest. Um, so that at the console, the surgeon moves their hands, and and the movements are replicated exactly inside the robot. The robot doesn't decide what to do or do things automatically. The surgeon is actually moving things. You said that for the patient, a minimally invasive robot-assisted surgery, uh, they can recover more quickly because they're not being opened up so much. Is it easier for you as the surgeon or is it harder? It was harder for me at first because (laughs) I had to learn these minimally invasive techniques. Current surgeons finishing training today are much more adept at the minimally invasive techniques. And uh, But once I was doing enough of these, now I feel comfortable both ways. Both ways are equally uh, easy for me. How did you How did you practice? I mean, do you have a, like a simulator or you go? You do. You yeah. have a simulator. And, uh, and initially we would practice as a team. So both surgeons would go and practice, one working at the bedside of the simulator and the other working in the console so we would get to be a team and then we'd switch and we'd so we could uh, fill in either way and uh, it takes a, a lot of teamwork to be efficient with this and not to waste time what's on the console what does that look like i mean you're controlling the robotic arms at the console so it's it's got two uh uh, I guess arms that the surgeon inserts fingers into, and then as the surgeon moves their hands and their fingers, those movements are very exactly replicated by the robot. The only thing we can't do is we can't get a sense of touch or feel like how hard are we grasping something. So we need vision to be able to do that, and the robot provides good three-dimensional vision. It's which gives us uh, all we need. And I assume the patient is asleep when you put the robotic arms in? Yeah, they're asleep. <laughs> okay, and then are they then on the heart, are they on a bypass? So they're on the heart-lung machine? Right, so the surgery on the heart is exactly what we would do with an open surgery. Uh, it's on a heart-lung machine. We have to stop the heart, open the heart, and work then directly on the valve. We can see the valve much better with a robotic approach because the hands of the robot are then inside the heart, really, and the the camera goes almost inside the heart, and the view is perfect. And how do you get the heart to stop, and how do you get it restarted? So we do that the same way we do with the open technique. Um, we stop it with a solution called cardioplegia that... Uh, stops the contractility of the heart. And then once we give the heart normal blood, it just beats. Hearts like to beat. <laughs> it just goes back to its old job. Yep. Um, it's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the mitral valve. Is that the one that uh, there is most often a problem with? And, and what can you fix? Well, most often we see problems with the left-sided heart valves, either the valve leading in, which is the mitral, or the valve leading out, which is the aortic valve. And we... Can of those two valves, the mitral tends to be easiest to apply repair techniques. We don't have to replace it for certain types of lesions. We can repair it. And uh, how do you figure out what's wrong in the first place? Do you, how do you know what you have to fix? 
Well, echo is usually the most reliable way of seeing it. And, and, and that's an ultrasound? That's an ultrasound that's done from outside. And yes. it shows you the function of the heart and, and what may be wrong and how the blood is flowing? And even the structure of the valves now, we can see very with high resolution with echo. It's pretty amazing. And what's the most common problem you see with the mitral valve? Leaking. In the United States, the biggest problem is leaking of the valve, which is called insufficiency or regurgitation. And you can fix that with the robot? 90% of the time we can fix it. And if you can't fix it, do you have to replace the valve? And can you do that robotically? Yes and yes. We can. We would have to replace it, and we can do that robotically. And then if you have to replace it, what do, what do you use? A mechanical valve, or do you use it? Yeah, there's two types of valves, either mechanical valves or tissue valves. The mechanical valves will last forever, uh, but they require a blood thinner. And the tissue valves uh, don't require the blood thinner, but they might wear out. And what's the recovery like uh, of this sur- minimally invasive surgery versus when you have to crack the chest, open the chest? So it's still a surgery. It's not like a catheter-based procedure, and the patients do need time to recover. Um, after a, a full sternotomy, it probably takes six to eight weeks to really get their stamina back and feel good again. And Sternotomy meaning you have split the chest, right? the breastbone to get in. Exactly. And with uh, the minimally invasive technique, it's more in the neighborhood of four weeks. Everybody's different, of course, and some people need more and less with both approaches, but it's just a little bit sooner. I think getting the stamina back is the most frustrating thing to young people recovering from surgery. Let's say you have decided that you need to replace the valve and you're going to use a mechanical valve. I assume that's about the size of a, what, a grape? Walnut grape? It's uh, it's about the size of a a half dollar. Okay, so how do you get it in there? Um, Well, actually, it's interesting because getting the valve through the incision is sometimes challenging when we have to replace it. The incision (laughs) has to be big enough to... Squish the valve through. Right. Uh, sewing it. We have the arms in, and the sewing is fine. But the, and then how do you get it into the heart? Uh, we have an incision in the heart that we're working in the through. muscle. Yes, yes, the upper chamber, the atrium. All right. And you've done how many of these? Uh, over nine hundred now. Mm-hmm. And you've got a couple of guys that you're training to take over. Should you ever decide to, to give <laughs> this up? Yep. They're and they're gr- very good. They're great. All right. Robotic assisted heart surgery. The surgeon sits at a console looking at the heart on a video monitor, and I think you have a magnified 3D view of the whole thing, don't you? Yes. And you perform the procedure with robotic arms. And since what is it, 2008, you've done over 900 procedures. You going to hit a thousand this year? This year we will, for sure. All we're, right. Our, we're busy. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic cardiovascular surgeon. Dr. Rocky Daly. Thanks, Dr. Daly. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a common cause of vision loss, macular degeneration. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Macular degeneration. It's the leading cause of loss of vision in the United States. And in fact, it affects more than 10 million people. At present, macular degeneration, unfortunately, is still considered incurable. But... It's a big but. But there are some promising new treatments on the horizon. Here to talk about the disease, including a new treatment for the most common form of macular degeneration, is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bakri. 
Thank you. Well, hopefully we're finally going to hear some good news about macular degeneration. But before we do that, tell us about the macula. So the macula is the center of the retina. It's the part of the eye that gives you the fine vision. And unfortunately, it is prone to disease. And one of the big diseases that can affect the macula is macular degeneration. And that's why it's so debilitating a disease, because it affects the central vision. So it's a part of the retina, and it's probably the most important part of the retina. And when you say it's prone to disease, you mean, and we call it a macular degeneration, it just wears out? Basically, it wears out. I mean, it starts to occur in patients over the age of 60. Um, The older you are, the more likely you are to get it. So it, it is a degeneration. And ultimately, you can't see anything in front of you. You can only see on the sides. Is that right? That's right. It's mainly the central vision um, that is lost if it's not treated. So tell us more about the symptoms. How might someone, what would be the first thing someone might recognize with regard to their vision that would suggest it was macular degeneration? When patients don't know about macular degeneration, they often think that something is just doesn't look right, something's off, um, it's blurry, um, or lines appear wavy. So typically I would say central blur. Central blur. So in the middle part of your vision, it looks blurry. Yes. And what about uh, the difference between wet and dry? Do those both present the same way with the blur in the center? Um, typically, patients can have dry macular degeneration without knowing it. Like any disease has you know, early, middle, and late stages. So one could have the early stages and not know it, and it could linger on for years. And as the stage of dry macular degeneration becomes more advanced, there could be patches of the central vision um, that are missing. Now, as time progresses, the chances of the macular degeneration becoming wet increase. And what wet really means is that there is an unwanted blood vessel growing underneath the retina, and it leaks fluid and it leaks blood, and the vision can be impaired because of that. So that's the difference between dry and wet is uh, the accumulation of blood vessels underneath the retina. Yes, that would make it wet. But most people have dry, right? Isn't that far and away the most common type? Yes, it starts off as dry, but dry can just be a few drusen, which are like little spots of under the retina, or it could mean um, atrophy, where there are patches where the cells in the retina have died. Atrophy or shrinkage. Shrinkage of the cells, yes. All right, and how do you tell the difference? How do you make the diagnosis? Typically, we um, examine the patient at a machine called the slit lamp. We also take photos, and... There are very sophisticated um, technologies now for assessing the very earliest uh, blood vessel growth. So you can actually see that with your special instrument? We can see it in the later stages, but if we really want to detect it early, there are uh, some very sophisticated instruments that we can use um, as well. Is it important to detect it early? The earlier it is detected and the earlier it is treated, the better the, the outcomes from treatment. All right, so let's talk about treatment because you've got some new treatments available. 
So for um, wet macular degeneration, we'll start with that. There is actually a new treatment available. Um, we have typically had uh, three injectable drugs that block the growth factor that makes the blood vessels. And now there is yet another injectable drug, and that's just been FDA approved. Those are the anti-VGFF, anti-VEG... Anti-VEGF, yes. Anti-VEGF. Okay, so they work in similar ways. Now we have um, a new anti-VEGF as well. Now the exciting thing about the field of wet macular degeneration is that there are other treatments coming. And right now patients come and see us for injections as often as every month. So you inject something into the eyeball? We do. It's a very, very tiny needle, and we do numb the eye. We sterilize the eye. It's an extremely tiny needle, but it can be uncomfortable, and um, it can be inconvenient for patients when it is needed as often as once a month, and that's just one eye. And indefinitely, you never get to stop those shots? Usually, you don't get to stop because it's a therapy. It's not a cure. Okay. And what about gene therapy? Uh, Something new, maybe? So gene therapy is very exciting um, because with gene therapy comes the potential to do that one treatment that will continually deliver the therapy to the eye. So one instead of every month. Correct. One instead of And when do you think we might have that? I'm hoping in a few years, as you know, any new drug or any gene therapy has to be rigorously tested to make sure it's safe for patients and that it works. And uh, gene therapies are currently in clinical trials. But all these baby boomers that are going to be hitting the age where macular degeneration is going to become a bigger deal uh, are probably pretty interested in that. Is it likely that it will happen? I'm very optimistic. Good. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about the dry, because it's more common. Uh, It can turn into the wet, but most people uh, who have macular degeneration start out with with dry macular degeneration. And heretofore, there's really not been any treatment. Nutritional therapy, I think you called it. So you take vitamins and otherwise not much to treat it. But now you've got something, right? Not quite. We've got something on the horizon. (laughs) There are actually a number of therapies in clinical trials for dry macular degeneration. And there are therapies that have slowed down the um, death of the cells, which is great. Um, it, uh, they've resulted in less vision loss. And there are therapies in clinical trials that surprisingly have been shown to increase vision. As we get further along the clinical trials, we're going to learn more. Not also just to stop it, but actually to improve vision. To improve it, correct. What's the name of that new antioxidant agent that uh, begins with an R? <laughs> the, uh, that's in uh, risugetinib. It's in um, phase... Risugetinib. It's in phase two clinical trials. Those results have just been announced, so that will be moving um, further into clinical trials. What about vitamins and supplements for for not only prevention, but also if you've got it and these new drugs aren't quite available yet, particularly if you have the dry macular degeneration? There is a um, supplement that was shown to slow down macular degeneration um, according to the age-related eye disease study, so A. R-E-D-S, the AREDS uh, 2 supplement, and that has a number of vitamins in it that may slow it down. But it's also important to control risk factors. There's no point taking a vitamin if you're a heavy smoker, you eat fatty foods, you don't exercise. You know, general um, lifestyle and and the Mediterranean diets have to really um, 
uh, contribute um, here as well. So, so trying to have a healthy heart also leads you to have healthier eyes as well. Definitely. Okay, so uh, age is the most important risk factor, but isn't it true that smokers are, have twice the risk of developing macular degeneration? That is, that's a well-known risk factor, yes. Wow. All right, the disease is called macular degeneration. It's the most common cause of vision loss among Americans. It's likely to affect more and more Americans because, you know what, we're all living longer and age is the most important risk factor. It's still incurable, but there are new treatments that are promising. Dr. Sophie Bakri, ophthalmologist at the Mayo Clinic, I'm, we're all so hopeful. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.